0: from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com.
1: This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses a Seizure, as you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: All right. You may um, be wondering what's happening uh, with the howling in the background. Um, we are really excited to kick off a very special episode of the Farm Report today. You're going to be hearing a recording we did earlier this month while we were on site out at Cane Vineyard and Winery in St. Helena, California. That was the sound we heard as we were winding down the mountain. Um, the howling of some type of creature uh, can- coming in through the car windows, it was so striking we had to stop and uh, hold our iPhone outside the roof of the, the rental car to, to grab a, a piece of that. Um, of course, you're tuned into the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Off air, I'm the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network. On air, every week on the Farm right, on the Farm Report, we talk about all kinds of issues facing agriculture and food production today. And in this episode, you're going to hear us take a walk through the vineyards with uh, Chris Howell, longtime supporter of Heritage Radio Network. We were joined by a good friend of mine, Kate Hardwick. And we're going to jump into uh, a few recordings. Um, Apologies in advance. It was a touch windy at the top of the mountain. So there's um, some of that will pop through, but we've tried to trim out most of it. Just to kind of set the scene, it was about 6.30 in the morning, and we had driven to kind of the top of the vineyard and popped out of the car, and Chris was kind of giving us a lay of the land and a little sense of what the weather had been like and what type of season they were having up at the vineyard. So, Liz, we're going to jump right into that recording, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you guys.
1: But it doesn't rain in the summer. Everything turns brown. All this green grass will be brown. And... Um, It might even happen earlier this year. It might happen in May because we're having such an early spring. But it's all driven by the timing of the rainfall. In northern California, we see rain principally in November, December, January, February, and March. All the rain for the year will come just in this five months. And, And you either get it or you don't. And the most important part, we've learned this, is the rain that falls and goes into the soil. Because there is no way to replace the effect of natural rainfall on soil, and the roots explore the soil, the roots of every plant, all the trees, everything, but especially the the perennial plants that live from year to year to year like a grapevine, they go deep into the soil and they explore the soil, and they need that moisture
2: mm-hmm.
3: without
1: that, that wouldn't happen-. Mm-hmm. And it's not just water, the way we learned in grade school, and we had a little Dixie cup that we put on a desk. Right. It's actually living matrix in the soil of all kinds of organisms, all kinds of fungi and bacteria that are populating the the earth, allowing the plants to nourish themselves. And we are taught, you know, it's chemical fertilizer. You know, and it's wrong. It's all wrong. So soil is 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 the most complex and most interesting it's a surface living thing of our earth. Oh, that. it is. Yeah. No. Well, we are. I would say that the dominant story that is taught to us in school and everywhere else is that it's a dead, inert substrate, and you add chemicals. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that serves only the purpose of the fertilizer. So because if you start using pesticides, you kill that living matrix in the soil, and that turns out to be the very thing that nourishes us. It's a bizarre contradiction.
2: Well, it reminds me of like a lot of like grass-fed beef farmers will say like they're not beef farmers or grass farmers. Yes. And I wonder if there's a corollary with with uh, you know growing wine.
1: Really. Just here, you know, when you think of uh, wine, you think of the grapevine, and the first thing you think of is Harvesting the grapes, mm-hmm. but it's everything else is what we're really doing. That's just the last step, and um, I'm right there with you, Aaron. I didn't understand this stuff when I got here in in the eighties. I'd gone to a school of agronomy, and nobody had talked about what's living in the soil. The only thing they talked about is the possible pests that there might be, and whether or not you would choose to sterilize the soil. <laughs> what a absurd idea! But yes, and so so it's taken time to realize that the most interesting part of the whole thing is is the soil. And it, I'm using that because, of course, I learned it in a vineyard. And uh, I would say, you spoke of the ranchers who understand they're, they're tending the, the grass, which in turn means tending the soil. I would say we should all understand this, but you understand it particularly with, with not annual crops, but perennial crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go back to the, you know, gardening and pots, you, you at first might not be very conscious that this soil needs to have a lot of living things in it, because it's a closed environment and you're worried about pests accumulating and everything else, and it's not as easy. Honestly, it's not as easy. But, across the across from the Pacific, and, and it, if it comes too fast, it'll just run off, that's fine, but we do need it to soak into the soil, mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: and um, if you're on a mountaintop, the water you get is mainly going downhill, people speak about wells and water table and so forth, that's relevant to the valley, that's where the water will settle, and be in and under deep alluvial soil, on a mountainside. It's a whole other thing. Nobody really knows where the water goes because it has cracks and fissures and different um, geological strata that either hold or or shed water.
2: And you guys have, I mean, like I noticed that when we were walking around, you have put in, like there's a, there's a, you know, tubes or it seems like there's like places where you've
1: designed. uh, That catch the, the, the rainwater, so it doesn't create erosion. Right erosion control is very high on our list of attention items, mm-hmm. especially in October, November, December, when the new season is beginning of rainfall, and that's why we usually have um, cover crop everywhere, is to keep the soil in place, mm-hmm. and then we have a lot of work to make sure the water doesn't accumulate and cut into the soil, so that's why you saw all those drainages right. and little ditches and yeah. Um, But then in the summer, despite everything I said about the rain, we do not have any rain in May, June, July, August, September. And we do irrigate on a hillside because our vines don't have as deep a root as they could because the soil is very thin on a hillside. Most of the soil is in the valley. That's why farmers like the valley. Valley. (laughs) Farmers don't farm mountainsides. For, yeah. You graze mountainside, <laughs> yeah so mountainsides are much less productive. That's good for a grapevine, but it here does. where it doesn't rain for <laughs> half the year, um, we do irrigate. And we get that from rainwater that we have reservoirs that fill up.
2: And you collect, yeah. And that's,
1: a, and that's I, I consider that to be supplemental.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's there. The house is there. There's a vineyard right there. It's easy to walk around. Go right down... From the pool in through the garden,
2: and yeah, that's what we did last night. Yeah,
1: and then uh, down below we can see a porta potty.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, guys are out there tying grapevines because uh, after we prune, we tie.
3: Okay.
1: And uh, so they're working there. Here we have a lot to of tie work. Out. To do. Usually try to finish pruning by the second week. But but this is the earliest break we've ever seen. Ever? Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, every year is different, honestly. 2010 and 11, particularly 11, was actually a very late year. Hmm. And as a farmer, you live from year to year. You don't really see the larger trend. But, But right now, you know, we could easily say really, as much as it is, I've heard climate change, and I've even heard climate chaos. When you're a farmer you rely on the weather always being the same, and the irony is it's never Never the the same. same. Never, never the same, and it's always different, and every year's different, and you never know exactly what to expect, and and the only difference is who do we blame? (laughs) You know, is it God, is it Mother Nature, now it's us.
2: Yeah. That's like there's a a a vegetable grower I talk about climate with a lot in upstate New York, and he's been farming. He also farms on like a small hillside, and you know I'm always interested in like what he's observing as trends, and he's always very like remiss to talk about it. He's like you're not asking the right questions, basically, Um, and 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 like also this even though I've been spanning, I've been farming this piece of land for the last 30 years. It's such a short time frame to think about those. Kind, you know, he's like, it's just not, it's just not the way we think about it.
1: He's right.
2: Um, which was like, a, you know, lesson learned for me. I'm like, oh, okay. So like, how do we, you know, it's like when you're looking at the individual versus like the aggregate, you're right, like, right. how do we, where do we look for those lessons? that are like, how do you, how do people adjust again? Like at the individual level and in the aggregate, like what do you.
3: I mean, why I like the conversation to go, personally, is
2: the idea of um,
3: don't be wasteful. Yeah, like no I just see, you know, wasteful with any resource. It, it bothers me when people dog Lake Michigan as being dirty or being this and that. And it's, I mean, you have one of the largest sources of fresh water in the world. Like, how could you not respect that? And yeah, want to take care of it. There are those pure Michigan ads all around Chicago. And I'm like, shh ruin it
1: <laughs> there is a little of that. <laughs> let's go find these people the thing about it is adapt we will <laughs>
2: yeah well we won't
1: have a choice the there's no alternative is, the question is how we'll adapt and, and speculating about it and and even though we think in the, in all the you know now you know, long-developed science of of climate and global warming and everything. These changes happen over decades and generations. And that's really fast because in our Napa Valley, for example, the issue of climate change came up and I said, you know, as opposed to being deniers, which is what everybody wants to be, I said, why don't we call up some, some scientists and find out what we really know about our little Napa Valley. Because most of the work's been done on a global scale, it's not really even done on a continental scale, and we want to talk about just a little area in the Napa Valley. And uh, a friend of ours said, "Well, I know just the guy. He's on the international panel of climate change, and and and, uh, <laughs> and you know, right. and they just are winning a Nobel Prize. And so he we Well, yeah, well, let's, let's talk call, to them. Let's <laughs> call these guys up, see what they have to say.'
3: <laughs>
1: and you know, it was." kind of like deflating. Because what they said was, yeah you need about 60 years of data. <laughs> uh-huh. you mean? We're going to be dead? We won't know? And uh, by the way, you have two weather stations in the entire valley that are valid for that length of time. And what we know is what we know. And we're not going to know more for
2: another 60 years.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, and, and, and by the way, uh, we haven't really worked on the scale that you want. You know, our pixels used to be 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers. And now we're working downwards. But they're big pixels. And your valley is like two or three or something. Right. So we can't really say exactly what it's going to be like. And it's like, gosh. Oh, great I thought you were a scientist I thought you were going to tell me
2: well there's that desire <laughs> there, there is that, that assumption you're like oh well someone knows right someone's keeping track of these things someone's paying attention Like,
1: so that's great and I, I only want to say one more thing on this point because it's totally relevant to this moment um, farmers do keep track Yeah. every year okay. they keep little notebooks this happened and that happened thought well we'll mine the history and the records of of our farmers and and we said this is what got this because you know I'm sure a lot of people call these scientists up you know wine gets a little bit more love than a lot of things and and they tend to answer the phone but what we said is we've got records about how our grapevines grow when do they have bud break and the guy said well that's great because I've been working on on lilacs I have um uh been tracking the blooming of lilacs all over the western United States for the past, you know, 30 years as a biological indicator of the climate. And you're going to give us grapevines? Yeah, I'll talk to you. That's really how it happened. But it turned out our records on Bud Break weren't quite as good as we thought. (laughs) Not as much detail and I'm just hoping you you can stand. And so it's like, not as helpful. (laughs) So for all of that, we didn't, you know, we learned more about the state of, of the science
3: mm-hmm.
1: as lay people. We understood kind of where we were and what we knew and what we didn't know. And it was kind of depressing to realize there was a lot more we didn't know than we did know. Right. After all the talk and chatter and everything else. Right. It's like wait. I thought you do. Yep. <laughs> well, we do know, but not what you want to know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh thanks. Uh-huh. So I have to stop here just to show you something, and then we're going to go down. Yep. Let's see why in just a second. So these buds are opening up. Oh yeah. And it looks a little bit like a pussy willow, or you know it's a little fuzzy thing,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but you know a bit. It's going to get out a little farther, and then you'll start to see a little bit of green in there, and a little bit after that, see this one's even further out. Yeah. So we'll walk past the vine that has been pruned to see a few that have not, all right? That way the reason is, if you can get in here, Give you a chance to see how the vine did grow. These are some—we'll uh, call them experimental roads, but this is not research, okay? Yes. We're, we're just playing with it. Um, here you can see that how the grapevine grew last year. Remember that's—I was responding to your vine around, mm-hmm. Kate. Each of these was the shoot that grew last year. So it grew up, okay? Up, 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 up and there was a leaf at each node and the fruit was down here here there is a cluster right there and um, there is a cluster there and so so you had leaves here and of course they all fall off in the wintertime and then we're going to prune the vine, and we will remove almost everything that grew. And use one thing to be the cane. See, now last year, you can see what we left last year was this. This piece was the equivalent of this a year ago. But we left it, and then so the bud didn't grow. This grew which now we can use one of these to replace that.
3: So which, like if you were looking at this, which, what would you prune off or what would you keep?
1: Well this vine is a little different than our standard procedure. That's why I said experiment. Yeah. Because what we're gonna do is we're going to, see how we have a cane here?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We're gonna use, we're gonna get a cane this time from this side even though it's a little high up. We're gonna get a cane from this side and on this side we're only going to leave a spur, and we could leave this or this. if this is up, I don't like that, so we 'll probably leave that. Mm-hmm. but this is further away. See the idea of the vine, this is vine that's about 20 years old, is we don't want it to just get bigger and bigger and bigger. It needs to stay in its place. This one would be easier for me, probably the cane is this because it 's just going to be the easiest to work with, but this would work too. This is the one that we should, probably we should use this one, not this one. I I said that, and I made a mistake. This is the one we want. And then on this side, we'll cut this and cut that off. But this is a form that we aren't regularly doing, because what you see on this side... For us, a more standard. And so how many canes will this vine support? What's the right number? And what's the right place, and I would say we're pruning at least for three years ahead, yeah
3: is this the water?
1: That's the irrigation, and that we would do that in the summertime. Okay. Here we didn't actually irrigate too much um. It's the less stressy part of the property. If you think about it, and think about it's a pretty sundial. It's through here. Well, yeah, it's, it's, but it's wintertime and the grass grows.
2: <laughs> it's, that's a funny sentence for someone in the northeast. I think yeah. it's wintertime, so the grass is growing. Well, but
1: that's the whole point is our cycle is very different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, just for the fun of it, you can see these vines are pruned differently.
3: Are they different grape bridal?
1: In this case, it is. But we have a variety here that we've pruned in two different ways, and uh, it's basically because uh, Ashley's predecessor didn't. Messes, he wasn't so sure he liked the method that I insist on, which is this. Anyway, mm. Can gonna you go tell a looking at um, what
3: well, looks to me like a naked vine? Can you tell if it's Merlot or Cab or?
1: I can't. Okay. Um, but you can t- mainly we, we we describe identifying a grapevine as ampelography. Okay. And what it really means in in is writing about the leaves.
3: Oh, Okay. And so it's the leaves that the give
1: leaves it away. are how we tell what it is. It's okay. not by looking at the fruit either, and especially the growing tip. So once the once those buds are out, now uh, something. But they couldn't have identified it. If you just gave them a piece of wood, they wouldn't mm. have said, oh, I know what this is. It's not that easy. Yeah. But if they know there's Saran Cabernet, they would know the difference instantly between the two. So that's the case here. On this other hillside over there is Merlot. Okay. And uh, But we're actually growing um, five principal varieties in the vineyard and... Many, many different versions of Cabernet Sauvignon or, or Merlot, and then many different—they're all grafted on roots, and there's many okay. different kinds of roots too.
3: That was actually going to be one of my questions. If you, because I know apples are grafted, I wasn't sure and if grapes so these, were too. Yeah, they okay. are.
1: In the in our world, they are. So we're going
2: to take a, a short break here, and when we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the the wine that they produce at the, the vineyard and, and kind of how we think about wine. And we'll continue the conversation with Chris and with Kate. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay Stay tuned. Hang tight. We're going to take a short sponsor break and we'll be right back. listening to kill me in the summertime by dead stars this is the farm
0: report on heritage radio network.org
2: All right, we are back. We are in the midst of a very special episode. Um, It's a recording brought to you from the Kane Vineyard and Winery out in St. Helena in California, just north of the San Francisco area. In the interim, um, from where the recording left off, we hopped back in the truck and made our way further down into the vineyard. And uh, where the conversation picks up, we're sitting in kind of the center of uh, the bowl that formed the vineyard. And we're going to hear a little bit more from Chris about the wine and some conversations from me and Kate. So here we go.
1: So what I like about this little spot, now that, on the other hand, is powerful poppy. And that is we do like. And we do like those guys, too.
2: Purple cornflower.
1: Yeah. I think that might be something like that.
2: Oh, this is nice.
1: So I love this spot because um, you see how much of it is just nature. And the, can you see the cabin there? Yeah. So the family that homesteaded here still owns this all of this hill, and that's the. That, they put a cabin there, um, and have had that going for twenty years. They spent a summer up here with their two teenage boys, off the grid. Can you imagine? How cool is that? Yeah. Those teenage the boys-, boys loved it. No. Yeah. No, because of the you know no cell phone. Yeah. No mm-hmm. electronics, no television.
2: But a decade from now, that's going to be like a foundational like space in their upbringing. I mean, my mom did all you know. I think our parents, my mom did a lot of the like, you're going to go and you're going to like it. Um, <laughs> stuff that, like, <laughs> I didn't like very much at the time, but, like, now I realize how, like, foundational that was to, like, my perspective. Yeah.
3: I have a friend from, um, South Carolina and, um, his punishment... Because after- uh, it's just a messy, sticky, terrible job and like,
1: you learn if you don't. Even three weeks ago, all those little tender green leaves that you see on the oak trees, mm-hmm. there wouldn't be. It would have been all see there's some trees you can see almost there's no sign of growth yet right yeah if you look if you look into that forest you can see trees I say that are sort of whitish looking right in the middle of all this some are green and some aren't because they're different species of oaks and they're coming into bud break at a different moment and and there would have been any of these shades of green uh, a month ago That's why I wanted to come here.
3: Yeah. I like listening to all the different birds.
1: No kidding. Some of the oak trees never lose their leaves. Those are the, what we call... What do we call those things? Uh, live oak.
3: Live oak. My mother always said that. The oaks are the first to bud and the last to lose their leaves. Mm-hmm.
1: But some are different. They're different species that don't lose leaves at all. They hold their leaves all year long. And then, in the midst of all this, you can see that we also have um, fir trees. You can see them on the other hillside, especially, but they're in there, mixed in the forest. You can see them in the little draws of the canyons. Yeah,
3: we yep. We go. Um, I spend a lot of time in Colorado. I have a lot of family out there. Uh huh. so you look at my, you look at mountains like a ski run sometimes. Uh
1: huh. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The
3: dips and the gullies.
1: Yeah. <sighs> At this moment, it's idyllic. Mhm. But it's also very stormy. It could be really rough out here. We've had our you know roofs blown off of buildings, and and uh, it's
3: pretty high winds.
1: And we also are certainly sensitive to the idea of forest fires.
3: Hmm.
1: You know. I think there's this sense right now of, you know, nature as being benign in this moment, and with nature it can also be terrible, and that's all the way it is. It's, it's still, it's our mother. Anyhow, the beauty of wine is that it the most interesting wines do reflect the place where the grapevines grow they absolutely do mm-hmm. and the and the tension that exists in the world of wine, especially when you get into a you know the world of fancy wine and think fancy restaurant think Manhattan mm-hmm. or Chicago a lot of these wines have have been subjected to a lot of fixing up you know almost like you're going to a or something, you know, and they're messing with your food. And and I'm no no criticism, it's a style thing. Yeah. But the most interesting wines to me do reflect the place and in fact you have to be pretty sensitive to the to all the things that you could do in the cellar, but probably shouldn't. Because otherwise if you do all those things, you will lose the reflection of place.
3: Do you sell your grapes to any other No, no. <laughs> After all this? Okay. <laughs> So Wrong. We have- <laughs> Wrong.
1: It's like it's like do we do you sell your children? Not, hopefully not.
2: We had the, the cuvee last night, that's what we were drinking. Uh-huh. So I mean, how does that like in the in the wines that you produce, like what would you say is like the story of that?
1: Well, that is a whole other story, but that really came out of my personal uh, reaction to the idea, the very American idea that if, if the best wines are the biggest wines. In other words, if big is good, bigger is better. And That's a very American idea. And it was also in response to the idea that wines need to be tasted to be judged. And that tasting a wine and judging a wine will tell us if it's good or bad. And in fact, wines are meant to be drunk, and, and only in my world, I'll say, with food, not as a cocktail. Wines are not cocktail. A cocktail's sweet often, as you know, and it's mm. got so it's got a certain number of flavor ingredients, it pops and so forth. A wine that that really is about grapes comes you know, it, it it's fairly quiet. It's really there is an accent for the food. It makes the meal better. But I will say that's that's being lost in our culture. People drink wine by itself and, and you you see even when they have wine at table with their food, they drink the wine, then they eat. And when the food's gone, they drink the wine again. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's sad that we aren't really sharing the idea that these things really go with each other. And you can see how that evolved in the cuisines of the Mediterranean. And so when you get into places like Northern Europe where they didn't have that, uh, wine becomes all about drinking and not about going with the food. But if you go back to Chez Panisse, you can see exactly that these two are really meant. They're part of one thing.
3: It's the relationship. We were you know, talking last night, the idea where... you know, In an idea relationship, it brings out the best characteristics of each. Yeah. So you want the food to bring out the best characteristics of the wine and yeah. vice versa.
1: Yeah, and it's more that the wine brings out things in the food that you wouldn't notice. Because mm-hmm. the wine has acidity and astringency and bitterness. And these elements... Act as accents and a foil to the flavors in the food. So the idea with the cuvee is actually to demonstrate that even with the varieties of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, there can be lightness, and there can be freshness. And that's really what we're trying to do with the cuvee: is to show people that you don't have to be big, and you don't have to hit you over the head, and it doesn't it had have a lot to. Of fruit
3: quality it to doesn't it. have
1: to taste like barrels either, and <laughs> and and you know that's not what wine is about. I, I would go farther. One of the things that I particularly liked in uh, the Michael Pollan book on cooking is where he gets into fermentation, of course. Mm-hmm. Remember how he does it? He uses the four elements, right? Yep. Fire, of course. We understand fire and cooking and air and water. And, you know, water's probably boiling. But earth, back to the soil. That's where we started out talking about the earth. And, and, the, and the earth is a fermentation And so too with bread, which is his first reference. Right. And you know he has to talk about wine and beer. Right? Has to. But then he he gets to cheese. Oh, I love what he had to tell me about cheese because I didn't know that much. And he obviously takes a layperson's approach. Yeah. You know, and he opens a world up to people who maybe never explored that world. And for me, you see, wine begins with fruit. Mm -hmm. kate the way you said that but that's not where it stops any more than a cheese stops with the milk there are these transformations that are biological maybe you could say bacteria maybe you could say yeast but even the enzymes of the fruit itself will transform it from what it was as the raw substance that we harvested from the vine into the wine that you taste and all those transformations come under the category of fermentation and I'm just in love with that so that wine doesn't stop as grapes and that's where the issue is if wine becomes a a recipe or a process and a a series of ingredients like barrels and this and that you've lost the whole point Mm -hmm. but that's an opinion (laughs) not everybody gets
2: well it just seems more, f- I what would, I would say about the cuvee, it's like, it's just kind of f- fun. Yeah. Um, as it like, I, I don't know, I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's like... It, Weird mixed Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's just like, and like, too, it's like that, also like that exploring, uh, like that being open to the dynamic, like nature of the fermentation process. It's just more fun. I think there's mm-hmm. just like opportunity for nuance and pleasure and exploration and like, Delight in a way that like delight, that's a you know
1: lovely word. People take wine too seriously. Yeah. But let's just say this because I think I, I think we should reach a, a closing point. Wine can remind us of where the grapes grow. It can remind us of the earth, it can remind us of the soil and ask us to think about our connection to the earth. You know? And that's all about what you're doing with Heritage Radio. Is connecting the idea of how we nourish ourselves to from whence do we nourish ourselves?
3: Where does that energy come from?
2: Turn this <laughs> like, bam! <laughs> <laughs> wow! Um, so excited to get the chance to um, speak with Chris. Um, out on the vineyard, uh, take a tour. It was truly a, a, a magical way to spend a morning and, and really glad that I got a chance to share some of it with you guys. Um, I love that, you know, what can wine teach us about, about the land, about the earth, about ourselves, um, such a, such a like nice thing to ponder over dinner, With a glass of wine, uh, which I definitely recommend doing and would 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 encourage you to uh, take pause next time you're out and about or at your house and and enjoying something as delicious as as we got to share with Chris um, to just think about that full circle. Um, Pretty, pretty exciting stuff. That is where I'm going to leave you today. uh, You've listened to another episode of The Farm Report Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I hope if you believe in our programming that you will take this opportunity to become a member, visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. I do want to say I recorded that entire interview on my iPhone and uh, would love to hear from you. Um, Much like the howling that we started at the top of the show with, we'd be curious to hear what it sounds like where you are. So definitely shoot me some of those uh, at Erin, E-R-I-N, at heritageradionetwork.org. In the meantime, uh, please find us on iTunes or Stitcher. Subscribe, write a review. It really helps out the show, helps move us up in the kind of listener ranks to get that feedback. And, And of course, mostly, I just love to hear from you. And stay tuned to the other 39 great shows on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks so much for listening.